Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. We have two guests today, united only by one word, Lebanon. Jimbo Hannon, the great broadcaster of the Jimbo Hannon Show on Westwood One, is my first guest. And my second guest is Edward Fabriel, the former U.S. ambassador in the Clinton years to the country of Morocco, but he is here to talk to us about the perilous and parlous situation that exists in the country of Lebanon, a beautiful little country. I'm glad to say I have been there. Sadly, it is a failing or close to being a failed state after the terrible detonation of fertilizer in the port, but also after a decade or more of brutal corruption. Jim, welcome to the broadcast. You're something of a national institution, a man who has been on the radio for so long. Everyone seems to have heard you because you have so many stations. Uh, anyone who is on the radio or listening to the radio at night or driving a car with the radio at night has heard you. How did you get into broadcasting? Oh, that was uh, quite a, an inauspicious story, actually, Llewellyn. I got into radio because I wanted to meet girls. I was uh, growing up in the little southern Missouri town of Lebanon, Missouri, and uh, I was sort of the white Steve Urkel, I suppose, of Lebanon, Missouri, the geek, the nerd, and I wanted uh, very much to improve my uh, stud quotient, if you will. I thought if I were on the local radio station, that would help. That was station KLWT, which we called Keep Listening, We're Trying. And so uh, I did, uh, in fact, try out there. And the, the boss, Jack Sellers, I'll never forget it, he explained to me, he said, Jim, uh, we'd pay you what, it's, what you're worth, but it's illegal. Now, at the time, the federal minimum wage was a dollar an hour, so that's what they paid me. Okay, so you, you, you snuck in there with an ulterior purpose. Did it work? Yes, it did, as a matter of fact, because years later, there was a, a young lady named Annabelle Arnold in high school, and I, I sort of worshipped her from a near, but uh, she was always dating football captains and this sort of thing. But years later, years later, when I had the national show, and I was invited to Columbia, Missouri, where uh, the local affiliate had a 70th anniversary party, and I was the big star of the party. And uh, at the time, Annabelle was working in Columbia, Missouri, and she had a friend of hers who wanted to meet me. And uh, uh, Annabelle said, it was a dreary night, uh, icy uh, night in January. And uh, Annabelle said, I've met him, it's no big deal. And the friend said, get in the car, we're going. And so as a result, I re-met Annabelle and uh, we're happily married now. In fact, we've just celebrated anniversary number 22. So yes, it did finally work. Well, I left high school somewhat with the same objective but I knew I wanted to be a journalist. I had a very early idea that I wanted to be a journalist. And as soon as I was old enough to leave school, which was 16, I was out of there. I wanted the bright lights. I wanted to meet grown-up, sophisticated women and have drinks. I found the drinks a lot easier to get than the grown-up, sophisticated women. <laughs> which prevailed most of my life. <laughs> Uh, tell us, how did, you, how did you become a national figure? Uh, and I, let me ask you the question that always comes to mind with great broadcasters, and I've been lucky enough to know quite a few on, on three continents, actually. But, uh, and that is the voice, the big, 
beautiful, round, bell voice. Does that come with a career in broadcasting or do you have it first and apply it to broadcasting? No, growing up, I sounded more like this actually, but uh, with time, and I'll be honest with you, uh, probably the voice was aided by, uh, I did the math and I figured out that I, in uh, my life, smoked about half a million Marlboros, which I have not done now for the last 26 years, but uh, it'll probably uh, come back to bite me someday, but that probably uh, helped mold the voice. I got on national radio because of a mechanic who left a wrench in a rocket at Cape Canaveral, okay? Stay with me, this works out. I was working at WCFL radio in Chicago, and uh, at that time, uh, uh, we were affiliated with the Mutual Broadcasting System. And Larry King, who had a new nationwide radio program, came to Chicago and broadcast from the lobby of the local Hyatt Hotel there in Chicago, near the lakefront, and borrowed one of our engineers to do the show. During the breaks, I found out the engineer had told Larry how wonderful I was, and I thanked the engineer, thought nothing more about it. Well, it came November of 1981, and at the time, Larry King's radio show, his backup was a guy named Jim Slade, and Jim was also our space correspondent. Well, there was this launch scheduled at Cape Canaveral. Larry had to be off the next night to give a speech or something, and so Jim would cover the launch, and then he would go back to Washington, and he would fill in for Larry. Well, this mechanic left this wrench in the rocket. The launch was delayed, and so Jim Slade was stuck at Cape Canaveral who could they get to fill in for Larry? And somebody said, what about this guy, Bohannon? And that is how I came to be here right now. Now, Lisa, when, when, when um, Larry moved on to television, you stepped into his spot full-time. Is that how it was? As a matter of fact, yeah, Larry went on to, uh, to see it in full-time. And uh, the, the question was brought up. And in fact, I'll tell you exactly what happened there. They had a group called the Mutual Radio Affiliates Advisory Board, uh, various uh, uh, radio stations that advise management. So Larry was going on, and uh, the question was, who should succeed Larry? And uh, the owner of the, uh, the network at the time said, should we pick someone more high profile, like, say, Charlie Rose? That was the name that was brought up. And I have always assiduously sucked up to my affiliates. If I'm within 50 miles of an affiliate, Llewellyn, I go there, I visit, I go on the air, I cut promotional announcements, and it paid off because the Affiliates Advisory Board said, no, Jim Bohannon has earned the right to fail. And so that's how I got the job. And that was in January of 1993. So this coming January uh, will be 28 years that I've had this show. And... In that time, there have been huge changes in radio itself. Uh, in, in your time on the air, dramatic changes. One was the, the end of the equal time uh, requirement, the emergence of highly dedicated one-sided political broadcasting, most of it on the right, but not exclusively so. Um, how have you managed to stay down the middle? I've uh, made every effort to, to try and stay there, and I suppose uh, to a certain extent it has been uh, fertile territory because uh, it's not very crowded. Uh, most everybody has tried for one end of the political spectrum or the other, uh, whereas, uh, uh, by contrast, uh, the middle is, is uh, less densely populated. And in all honesty, the, the big stars on the left, and particularly on the right, uh, make huge amounts of money. Uh, uh, Rush Limbaugh 
gets by on a little over a million dollars a week. Try to imagine uh, surviving on that kind of uh, gross income. Uh, I make uh, considerably less than that, way considerably less. So uh, that and the fact that I think there is some market out there for, for uh, the other uh, viewpoint. So therefore, it's, it's been comfortable, and I have uh, not regretted the path I've chosen. The Jim Bohannon Show, it goes on at 10 o'clock Eastern time until uh, 1 o'clock, 1 a.m. every mm -hmm. night, so every weekday night. And, That's right. Um, and you have guests and call-ins. Yes. Uh, have you noticed any change in the nature of call-ins over the Yes, certainly there's been much more polarization. Uh, certainly, for example, the, the vast majority of the stations on which I'm on could be consolidated, not, uh, solved not only uh, talk stations, they would be called, uh, I would say, uh, conservative talk stations. And so the callers have tended much more uh, in that direction. And there's a strong market these days for what I call pre-digested news. And that is to say that people wish to be informed, but they wish to have uh, their information provided in a manner so that they don't have to think really hard about making up their minds. Okay, it is it is uh, given to them in a in a manner that is, uh, shall we say, uh, requiring less thought. Okay, and I don't mean that, that to demean them. I simply mean that that it's it's more convenient for these folks, I, I suppose, to have their their preconceptions uh, confirmed. How many stations carry the Jimbo Hannon show? Uh, the Jim Bohannon show is on about 300. Uh, I'm also carried on a show called America in the Morning, which I used to host for a good many years. And uh, if you eliminate duplications, I'm heard on about 500 radio stations all across the country. Which is a very high number. How many of the callers are total nutters? Oh, oh. <laughs> well, okay. Don't say you don't know. <laughs> well, now, I suffer fools gladly, Llewellyn, because they're often quite entertaining. Not always, but often uh, they're, they're quite entertaining. So uh, every now and then you run across uh, a few cases. In fact, there are some that I, I really, uh, they'll, they'll call in again, even though maybe I'm not always the nicest I might have been to them. And I, I appreciate the fact uh, that they call back in and, and they painted a bullseye on their chest. What has been the effect of podcasts on radio? I suspect it has siphoned off a certain amount of uh, listenership. Uh, of course, podcasts are, are done by uh, any number of people out there. There are a few which are, are really quite successful. Adam Carolla, uh, the uh, uh, comedian, I guess, would be the rough general description of Adam. Uh, he's uh, done quite well, makes a tremendous amount of money. There probably are I would guess in that category, maybe a few dozen uh, people. Most people, of course, uh, who do the podcasting are people who have uh, uh, maybe a few dozen listeners, all told. Uh, and that's, that's fine because it's for their own satisfaction, uh, really. Uh, I think that probably most podcasts, if you actually listen to them, you could hear a wide cross-section of podcasts, you would find uh, an old axiom is true. And that it, I've heard it said that anybody can do talk radio. And I've always so, said that was an incomplete sentence. Anyone can do talk radio poorly. And uh, I think most podcasts probably bear me out. I think you're right there. I think that people have this idea that if they had access, even access to print, they could just pour it out. Everybody, the idea everybody has one book on in them. 
yes. until I start writing it. And yes. find out that, you know, there is this thing about broadcasting and writing in which we forget that these are learned skills that we've practiced at them through long years and probably, hopefully, acquired some skill. People who come newly to it turn on a recording machine and start podcasting haven't acquired any skill at all, and it shows. I agree with you absolutely, Luella, and I think that that's true. And, and again, of course, uh, uh, the way that you learn usually is to make mistakes. And uh, if you uh, make enough mistakes at a level that will tolerate you making mistakes and you receive enough coaching, if you are forced to listen to yourself enough, which can be actually quite humbling if you're forced to do that in the beginning, but you do learn. You learn, well, I should do this, I should not do that. And uh, at first it may be seem artificial, but uh, ultimately it becomes habit. And, and once you have uh, acquired a certain good habit, then you're on the path to doing a good job. It is generally said that Larry King was a softball interviewer. Having been interviewed by Larry King and more frequently by yourself, I can certainly say that you are not a softball interviewer and that you're extraordinarily good at it and very penetrating. Um, how, how do you manage that? And did the softball thing uh, really help Larry King? I think it helped Larry King in this way. Larry was never going to be Mike Wallace, never intended to be Mike Wallace. And there is one thing about the Larry King approach, and that is that you soften up an interview subject. If you have the time, and that's the key factor, do you have the time? How's it going? How are you doing? How's the wife and kids? Uh, other ways of, of softening people up so that you can then get into some more uh, penetrating information. Now, I have tried to use on many an occasion a softball approach in the beginning. If you have an hour to conduct an interview, that's a lot of time. And if you come right out and you say, well, what about the such and such? And it's a big controversy in their life. If that's the first thing you say, they tighten up, they tense up, and you're not going to get much out of them. But if you do, open up a bit. How's it going? How are you doing? By the time you've reached 20, 30, 40 minutes in, then you can hit them with the question. And I think probably the, the main difference between me and Larry was that Larry never really got around to asking that penetrating question. But I learned from him the fact that most people are not going to open up if they feel hostility. And so I guess some would say maybe I'm conning people. I don't really intend to con people, but I have the luxury of an hour program. And so I can lead into those big questions. And uh, it's a lot harder if you have maybe five minutes and you're with a newsmaker subject and you've got to hit this topic. You can't do much softening up in four minutes. Well, how do you deal with extremely difficult people? Well, sometimes you run across those people. If you do have that, that whole hour, sometimes you can soften them up. I remember uh, talking with uh, Dr. Edward Teller who, of course, invented the hydrogen bomb. And I was told beforehand two things. One, that he was a difficult interview. And two, that he hated to be called the father of the H-bomb. So I thought, okay, very good. So I, I started talking to Dr. Teller, and, and I basically wanted him to simply explain to us how you take hydrogen and you make 
this huge bomb. I didn't obviously want a, a detailed description that you could put on the internet, uh, just simply a general idea for the layperson. And he was not cooperating. He would not climb down off his abstraction ladder, and it wasn't going well. And so finally, I went for broke, and I decided that I would just have to, to get his attention. And so I said, Dr. Teller, is it true that every June the H-bomb sends you a Father's Day card? Well, he kind of spluttered, and, and then actually I got a slight laugh out of him. And then I opened him up, and, and he, he, he began to talk. And boy, once he got going, you couldn't shut him up. And no, he was not. going off on all kinds of subjects. And, and, uh, and I, I asked him, like, why uh, do we always hate to take physics when we're in high school, the course of physics? And he said, because they don't teach it right. They, they should call it life. And he was going. And so sometimes just a, a little slight insult can work. I wouldn't recommend that as a general course of action, but it worked with Edward Teller. I, I uh, interviewed him several times and had several interactions with him and always had the same experience. Difficulty at first, edgy, uh, and suddenly the Niagara Falls of words <laughs> began and nothing could stop it once it began. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have an hour, Jim, and this is television, but I hope you'll come back on the program often because it is a, an honor for the program, a delight for me, to see you and hear you, one of America's truly outstanding journalists and broadcasters. Thank you. My pleasure and my honor. Thank you very much, Llewellyn. I'd be happy to come back anytime. Thank you. Cheers. Mr. Ambassador, welcome to the broadcast. What is happening in poor Lebanon? It had the largest explosion short of an atomic detonation, bigger even, I believe, than the dreadful one in 1917 in Canada, in, in Halifax, which was a munition ship. This was larger and more devastating. What is left of Beirut? Well, Lou, um, you know, it, there was destruction for uh, miles around the port. And in addition, um, you, you could feel the blast all the way to Cyprus and down into Israel. So. It was a major blast. They said uh, maybe the worst blast since um, Hiroshima um, in, in Japan. So uh, it was a blast at Hiroshima. Well, yeah, the explosion. Explosion. This was a gigantic explosion. Yeah. And the government collapsed, but Lebanon was in bad shape beforehand with a lot of political division, corruption. What is it now? A failed state? It's a failing state for sure, uh, Lou. They've just uh, formed their third government in a year. And the hope is that this uh, new prime minister will be able to form a government. The verdict is out and um, the prognosis is not good. If this government fails yet again to, to enact reforms that are necessary for the IMF, the international community to come in with billions of dollars of aid to help them stabilize, then yes, I think we'll be in a failed state status. But failed states, as a colleague of yours said to me recently when I was reporting this story, don't go away. People are still there. And the world has got a lot of failed states. Africa has several from my homeland, of Zimbabwe to Somalia. Uh, Syria is essentially a failed state or headed that way. Um, that's when there is no functioning central government, very few, if any, 
civil services like uh, police and garbage and the things we take for granted. Um, where is Lebanon if a totally failed state, failed state has no services, just people living almost like animals, and that's a one, and a 10 is a fully functional state with normal services, normal governance. Where is Lebanon in that scale? Well, they're definitely under five, Lou, but the Lebanese people have one thing that's in the range of 10, and that is they're resilient people who are very educated. So Lebanon will come back. The question is, how long will it take for a, a new government to form that can get rid of the corruption and the other problems that it's faced with? Lebanon has a surfeit of diversity, doesn't it? It has a complex constitution in which some jobs are set aside for Christians, some for Muslims. It has Hezbollah in there, financed by Iran. It has the French with an old colonial hangover interest. Uh, it has a lot of people would like to affect the future. Who are the players and what are they doing that is destructive? Well, you know, um, Lebanon has always been considered the Paris of the Middle East, the Switzerland of the Middle East for decades um, until their civil war. And after the civil war ended, it started in 75, it ended in 1990. They had the Taifa Accords that ended the war, but they really have not recovered to their old pre-war history uh, since. They, there's a tradition in Lebanon that the president is a Maronite Christian, a Maronite Catholic Christian. The prime minister is a Sunni Muslim, and the head of the parliament is a Shia Muslim. There are 18 uh, religious rites in Lebanon, and they pretty much divvy up the governance of the country according to a sectarian and uh, confessional interest. That worked fine uh, for a while, but now they've kind of run the country dry with corruption and an inability to really take the country to uh, its next step in growth. It's a westernized country. It was a westernized country. It looks to the west. It's an open country. It's a democratic country in many ways, and it has good market economy. So um, uh, philosophy and market economy, I should say. Um, so it's got good ingredients there for a comeback, but it's going to take leadership, new leadership, that is not uh, taking more than it's uh, giving. What should the United States be doing and what is it doing if those things are not the same? So the way I look at this, uh, Lou, is in two, 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 two ways. One is very short term, the next two months. And then after that, the midterm, uh, after two months through the first of the year. In the short term, there are two, two real needs. One is the United States should um, help with the humanitarian situation. We've got a devastating situation, not because of the, only because of the explosion, but you had a failing economy. You've got more refugees per capita uh, because of uh, Syria mostly, living in Lebanon, uh, which is really a drain on its infrastructure and resources. 
uh, you've got um, uh, uh, services that aren't being um, um, dealt with, uh, whether it's garbage or electricity or telecommunications. Now the ports exploded. With all of this disaster coming so fast within a year for the most part, humanitarian aid is number one. The Lebanese American community has given more in aid and free flights to Lebanon and humanitarian aid than the United States government. It gave $18 million in aid so far. Most of it's reprogrammed on promises they've already made, plus another 30 million in food aid, which the Lebanese don't need right now. They need reconstruction aid. So that's one part. The second part of the short term is trying to bolster this prime minister uh, and show him that he has an opportunity to get tens of billions of dollars into Lebanon in short order if he can put together a government that's not corrupt and is willing to make the reforms necessary for transparent and new government. That's the short term. Longer term, you've got two sides to it. One is the um, conditional side, as I call it. Um, you've got two big arrows in the quiver of U.S. foreign policy. One is sanctions. Uh, right now, the United States is sanctioning people associated with terrorism. It has been mostly uh, uh, been targeted at the Hezbollah party, which is uh, a Shia Muslim group, but they're now branching to other groups and religions, quite frankly, with their sanctions of people who are corrupt and or harboring terrorism. So that's one uh, arrow in the quiver. But the problem is it's, too, it's being too, used too much and there are not a lot of other arrows in the quiver. The other conditional thing, of course, is what we talked about, and that is no more money is gonna be thrown at this, at a bad government. They're not gonna throw good money after bad money anymore. So you've got that conditional um, demand longer term on them to form a government and facing sanctions. Unconditionally though, midterm, the United States and the Western allies have to understand that we should have unconditional support for um, the Lebanese Armed Forces, which is the only good working institution in the country, for civil society who is gonna come out of the ashes of this ruin and lead their country, uh, help for the refugees, anti-poverty programs, those, the universities, AUB, um, and uh, Lebanese American universities, these are the kinds of aids that are gonna really should be needed now and unconditionally. In other words, don't penalize the Lebanese people while you're trying to um, deal with um, a government. Talking about the diaspora, you are in fact yourself a Lebanese American, correct? I am, sir. <laughs> ambassador for coming on and leaving us with a little bit of cheer and some enthusiasm for the poor beleaguered people of Lebanon. Cheers. Thank you, Lou. That's our show for today. We will be back next week. Meanwhile, ties off and masks on. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you 
in your pocket.